Hello, my friend. This is Meditations for Misfits, and I'm Fred Gruy. Looking back on my disorienting experience I talked about last week when I was in Tondo, that section of Manila in the Philippines, well, that began a season of deep reflection on what I truly believe, what I taught, and, and honestly how arrogant my own worldview was. During that time, I, I came across a, a quote from the Greek playwright and poet Aeschylus that both uh, deeply disturbed me and somehow comforted me at the same time. Aeschylus, 2,800 years ago, wrote these words. He says, He who learns must suffer, and even in our sleep, pain that cannot forget falls drop by drop upon the heart, and in our own despite, against our will, comes wisdom to us by the awful grace of God. Now, at the heart of these beautiful words is the question, can anyone become wise without suffering? And Aeschylus seems to say, no. What Aeschylus is saying is that no one can become truly wise, and I would add, compassionate, without suffering. No one can become wise or compassionate without suffering. Somehow, mysteriously, in the perceived God-awful alienation of those never-ending, pain-filled, sleepless nights, our souls can be sculpted into something more beautiful. Now, this idea is also captured by the Zen master D.T. Suzuki. Suzuki wrote, For the more you suffer, the deeper grows your character, and with the deepening of your character, you read the more penetratingly into the secrets of life. All the great artists, all the great religious leaders, and all great social reformers have come out of the intensest struggles which they fought bravely, quite frequently in tears and with bleeding hearts. Unless you eat your bread in sorrow, Suzuki says, you cannot taste of real life. Now, two profound observations I find from Suzuki and Aeschylus. They're saying that suffering can enable us to live wisely, and the unique offering of suffering is that it can lead us into real life, into reality. Joseph Campbell, another very wise man who made a career out of studying the world religions and mythology, identified the nearly universal belief that suffering can be a doorway to wisdom. Campbell in, uh, explained to Bill Moyers in their famous PBS interviews, Campbell says one of the things that comes out in myths, for example, is that at the bottom of the abyss comes the voice of salvation. The black moment is the moment when the real message of transformation is going to come. At the darkest moment comes the light. The biblical author to the letter to the Hebrews in the New Testament seems to agree by stating that even Jesus of Nazareth was made perfect through suffering. So how does suffering transform us? Well, I suggest it comes by shattering the illusions that we've inherited or created and enabling us to see life as it really is and living in reality is living wisely. Now, during my work as a minister over the years, I've discovered another benefit of living in reality 
it's there that we're most likely to bump into the real God. Now, Christian theologians for centuries have affirmed the belief that God is everywhere all the time, and they they name this concept omnipresence, and it's based in large part uh, from the lines in Psalm 139, where the psalmist writes, where can I flee from your spirit, or where can I go from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. But I've discovered one place where God does not exist. And that's in my own dreams and fantasies. Because in my dreams and fantasies, I'm God. The real God does not dwell in unreality. If we hope to encounter this living being, this creator, I suggest the only place this can occur is in reality. But now, suffering alone does not provide such an awakening. Suffering provides the environment, the fertile soil for spiritual growth. Suffering alone does not guarantee an awakening. Suffering can honestly make us very mean and bitter and close us down and atrophy our soul. So something more is required, and I call this something more awful grace. I suggest it's this awful grace that shatters our illusions, awakening us to reality where we can truly experience the holy other we name God and become wise. Now, awful grace is not something different from the amazing grace that we sing about. These are simply two sides of the same coin. Amazing grace is the experience of loving acceptance from the beloved God that... uh, that created us and encourages us to trust in this divine other, even as awful grace painfully shatters our illusions and fantasies to awaken us to the truth. The result is we begin to live more heroic lives graced with wisdom and compassion. Grace is not only amazing and awful, I've also found sometimes it's just plain annoying. Annoying because if grace is anything, it's personal, intimately personal. It comes in its own sweet time. All the screaming in the world won't hurry it up one bit. God knows I've tried. But what's possibly most annoying is you can't earn it. It just shows up. Yes, it can be liberating. Yes, it can give birth to wisdom. But as the wonderful writer Anne Lamott has said, it also requires change. Grace requires that I trust God's loving acceptance and quit acting like a frightened little child. Lamott says, I do not understand at all the mystery of grace, only that it meets us where we are, but it does not leave us where it found us. That's one of the frustrating aspects of of grace. It it requires humility. It it must be received. You just can't earn it. And I I think of the there's a wonderful Zen story I love. I may have shared this with you before, who knows. But as the story goes, there was a young student who sought out a famous Zen master. And on arrival at the monastery, the young student began to relate and proclaim all the wonderful things the student had studied and read, the teachers he had had, and all the things he had accomplished in his life. And during the interview, the master said, would you like some tea? 
And the young man said, well, of course. And so the Zen master um, got up and grabbed the teacup or grabbed the teapot and began to fill the young student's teacup full and, and kept pouring. And the young man watched until he couldn't restrain himself any longer. And he says, it's over full. What are you doing? And the Zen master simply said, well, like this cup, you're f so full of your own opinions and assumptions. How can you learn anything until you first empty your cup? So am I any wiser today than I was back in those days of my Tondo experience? Well, I suppose that depends on who you ask. I'm sure some of my old friends and colleagues would say I've become a flaming heretic and have strayed from the one true path. Others would say, oh, he's grown into a more mature faith that is more inclusive and encompassing. Who's to say? As for me, while I have many more questions than I have answers, I also know that I am kinder, more compassionate, maybe even more humble than I was. But then again, I might well be very deluded. When all is said and done about becoming more wise, I suppose maybe we'll just have to rely on what uh, Justice Potter Stewart had to say. You'll know it when you see it. Thanks again for allowing me to join you for these few moments on your journey this day. In conclusion for this podcast, I'd like to share with you a, a Zen koan. Now, koans were riddles that really don't have an answer and that a Zen master would give to their student to work on. Now, the object or the idea of the koan is to blow open the student's mind because they're not logical and to realize life in a whole new way, to experience reality in a whole new way. So here's the koan for today. Attention. Master Jizo asked Hogan, where have you come from? I pilgrimage aimlessly, replied, replied Hogan. What is the matter of your pilgrimage, asked Jizo. I don't know, replied Hogan. Uh, not knowing is the most intimate, remarked Jizo. And at that, Hogan experienced great enlightenment. <laughs>